electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and we have another steep market sell-off on our hands today. The Dow dropping below 30,000. Look, and we're sitting right on that mark right now. Below it for the first time since last January. The Nasdaq, the worst performer again, back to its lowest since September 2020. Today's losses wiping out yesterday's post-Fed rally. Markets now seem more concerned about a recession with the 10-year Treasury yield back down to 3.33%. Our reporters are all over this story this afternoon. Dom Chu with today's market moves. Steve Leisman on the central bank rate hikes around the world, including a shocker from the Swiss. And Diana Olick on the continued fallout on the housing market. Welcome, everybody. Dom, take it away. All right, so the markets right now are still down 650 points, but believe it or not, That is 200 points or so off the worst levels of the session. We were down about 861 points or thereabouts earlier on this morning. So if you look at the Dow Industrial sitting right on, as Kelly points out, that 30,000 level, psychologically important, maybe more than anything else, but still down over 2%. 114 point drops here for the S&P 500, 36.76 the last trade there, off about 3%, and nearly 4% declines for the composite index, that NASDAQ trade, 10,685. And by the way, at the lows of the session, we were off over 4%. So again, lower for sure, but off the worst levels of the session. We'll see if there's some kind of stability brought in this kind of mid-afternoon trade as we approach the closing bell. One place to keep an eye on is the sector dynamic that's playing out right now. Maybe no surprise that over the course of the last one kind of year period, Energy is outperformed. Consumer discretionary and technology, some of the real underperformers there. And by the way, I would also point out that over the last week, it has been energy, consumer discretionary and technology that have taken some of the biggest hits among the biggest losers in the Nasdaq over the one week period. So you can kind of see where the steam is coming out of in the marketplace right now. And then with regard to some of the moves that we've seen in mega cap technology, always a key focus because these five stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Amazon and Tesla, make up a huge chunk of the overall S&P and nearly 40% of the NASDAQ 100. Apple shares down over 3%. Microsoft outperforming, if you will, only down 2.5%. Meanwhile, 3 to 3.5% declines for Alphabet and Amazon and Tesla's down nearly 8%. But we are not all about Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. No FUD here. I'm going to show you some of the parts of the market right now. They're actually green on the session. There's only about a dozen of them, Kelly, in the entire S&P 500. But they are kind of thematic to the trade that we're talking about today. First of all, gold prices. If inflation's a problem, gold has typically gone up higher. We're seeing a bid to gold prices today. New months up about 3%. Consumer staples companies like Walmart. Will there be a trade-down effect if the economy does go bad? CME Group, trading volatility, exchange operator, Procter & Gamble, consumer staples, and then Hormel Foods, packaged food products. Those names among, again, just about a dozen or so companies, Kelly, that are actually green on the session in this big sell-off. I'll send things back over to you. Fud, I heard you work that in there. Dom, thank you very much. The big moves didn't just come from our Fed yesterday. Steve Leisman in Washington with more on central banks around the world. Steve. 
Hey, uh, Kelly, yes, surprise and aggressive rate hikes went global this morning with the Swiss National Bank raising an unexpected 50 basis point that followed the Fed's 75 point move yesterday. A more restrained Bank of England, which curiously has a bigger inflation problem than everybody else, raised just a quarter and Taiwan went up an eighth this morning. European Central Bank could follow next month as central banks, some worried about their currencies, everybody battling inflation, move from the pandemic era policies of zero and negative rates bringing on a changed investment climate. Fed Chair Jay Powell, in fact, saying the Fed will be raising rates to specifically restrain the economy. As you get closer to the end of the year, you're in, you're in an, a range where you've got restrictive policy, which is appropriate, 40-year 40, 40 highs in inflation. We, we think that policy is going to need to be restrictive, and we don't know how restrictive. Let's show you where the median forecast is again and that big change from where the Fed was in March. 3-4 for the end of this year. I don't know if 2.5 is neutral at the bottom. You've got about a percentage point restrictive in there. Add some more in the following year. 3-8. All that's around where the market uh, thought the Fed ought to be. And then uh, rate cuts built in for the Fed and even the market for 2024 there uh, with a 3.4% rate. So a big jump yesterday by the Fed, but much more work to do to get to neutral and then restrictive, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Kelly, you can get on a plane, but you can't hide from rising rates. Yeah, I'm trying to kind of follow the narrative here, Steve, because yesterday when Powell said he didn't think 75 basis point hikes would be as common, we started to see risk assets take off. Then you get these more hawkish moves by central banks globally and risk assets sell off. But our 10 year yield is now lower on the session. Like I, I can't quite figure out what to make of it. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to help you out all that much. What I do know is that uh, there's a big adjustment to happen. And the, the Swiss are moving, I think, as much for inflation as they are for their currency reasons. Um, Japan, it's very interesting. Their, 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 their uh, currency has just fallen through the floor, as you know, uh, in, relative to the dollar and other currencies as well. Um, and you do have a global concern about recession and central banks doing too much. Um, all I know, uh, Kelly, is the prime directive right now for all central banks is going to be getting a hold of inflation and the economic pieces are going to fall where they may as a result. True. Well said. Steve, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Steve Leisman sure. in Washington. Now, with this global pivot in rates, it appears to be getting the, uh, clearer that the era of cheap money and easy money is over. How do you invest in this new environment? Joining us are Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at Legally Advisory and the CNBC contributor, and Jason Brady, President and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Welcome to both of you. Peter, I will start with you. What do you how do you explain the past 24 hours? That, that's a great question. I think that uh, a confirmation of the synchronized mode of global tightening where that we're experiencing. And uh, as Steve said, the Swiss sort of came out of uh, left field in a way that we weren't expecting it, but it's what they should be doing since they have the deepest negative interest rates in the world. So what we're now transitioning to is central banks that are now trying to wake up to reality because before this, the bond market around the world was tightening for them. And this is an attempt for central banks to sort of get back in control of this whole inflation narrative. But now we're going to shift to what's the economic implications of all this. The Atlanta Fed, as we said, uh, as was spoken, no growth in the second quarter. And we have to assume that there's a high likelihood that it could be negative in the second half and that there is going to be a global recession likely upon us in response to inflation, in response to all this tightening. Uh, so that's where investor focus is now shifting towards where do earnings shake out in that kind of environment. And where does that leave you, Jason, on the kinds of risk assets you want to own here? I mean, 
is fixed income now attractive because we've priced this in or does it continue to be, you know, a, a place of no return? Well, look, on a day when uh, Hormel is the only thing that's up, I would say if you only own spam in your portfolio right now, it's probably just as bad as only owning growth in your portfolio five, six months ago. It is absolutely the case that fixed income can play a role that it hadn't been able to play. Real rates on the 10-year space are up 2% from their lows, negative lows. And I'd also say that international equities are looking pretty interesting in the context of uh, other central banks moving and therefore maybe taking out some of the strength of the dollar. So there is interesting uh, things to do with money today. Uh, I expect a recession, frankly, uh, but we're starting to price that in. And so I'll tell you, as I've said before, Kelly, I I've bought the bottom before, but I've never only bought the bottom. Right, right, exactly. Peter, what do you think about owning international equities versus uh, U.S. equities? We, we do like uh, particularly Asian markets, and I do think today could be an interesting inflection point on the dollar, uh, as was just mentioned. So the Swiss franc is having a very short move higher against the dollar in response to what they did, also against the euro. And it's potentially a, a technically a double top in the dollar versus the Swissie. So well, I think if today is the beginning of the world realizing that other central banks are finally taking this seriously, just as the Fed has and that you're going to see a compression in interest rate spreads of overseas bonds relative to the U.S., that we could be marking the top in this dollar move. Hmm. If that is going to be the case, then international markets uh, should start to get some of their footing or at least start to outperform uh, U.S. markets from here. Do, do Asian uh, equities stand out to you, Jason? Where do you guys think has the opportunity? We try at Thornburg to put together balanced portfolios. So certainly there are, there are equities in Asia that are interesting. There's also equities in there's also equities globally that have exposure to Asia. Uh, we really like a, a European insurance name, NN Group, uh, cheap, uh, ten times earnings, uh, great cash flow, negligible exposure to Russia, Ukraine. It's got a good portion of our business in Japan. So. I think it's time that investors really take a look at, you know, what is the broader exposure? Um, pharma is another thing. AstraZeneca, uh, great, great uh, Asian exposure that's really going to be positive for them going forward. So you look at names that aren't necessarily the ones that are most beat up, but nor are they the ones we were hiding under a rock with. Um, great cash flow generation will fund growth. Make sure you have cash flow, yeah. and those names do, and lots of names in Asia do. Citigroup even comes up on your screen, which is kind of a surprise to see. Right. Peter, what would you do with the financials here, which are supposed to be a beneficiary of higher rates and yet have struggled mightily this year and now have to contend with stagflation? Well, the money center banks in the U.S. are obviously having to deal with also a potential downturn in the capital markets as M&A dries up, IPOs dries up, SPACs dry up and also the downside of a credit cycle. Uh, so I still think that that's going to be a tough place to be, whereas insurance companies can actually benefit from directly from this rise in interest rates. All right, and where would your final on metals, commodities, we're going to talk about a guest in just a moment who's seeing some bearish chart developments. What would you say of someone who's th who thinks this one might actually be a multi-year bullish cycle? Well, if, if I'm right that, the, that today maybe marks the peak in the dollar uh, off that Swiss franc move, uh, then I think that uh, that can light a fire upwards in gold and silver. All right. We'll see. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you so much today. We appreciate it. Peter Bookvar, Jason Brady, bringing some clarity. Much needed this afternoon. Higher rates have been hitting the home builders with 85% of the stocks in the housing ETF, the XHB, falling to 52-week lows today. 85% of these stocks. Look at TriPoint down 11%. And this comes as new data this morning show a further drop-off in demand. Diana Olick has all the details. Diana? 
Well, Kelly, that demand or lack thereof is showing up now in the May housing starts and building permits numbers. We got this morning a big miss on both of those. Total starts fell just over 14% month to month, down 3.5% year over year. The street was looking for a 2% decline. That is the lowest level since the start of the pandemic more than two years ago. If you break out single family, which is what we're watching so closely now, that was down 9% for the month. The home builders are clearly worried about rising mortgage rates and a sudden drop in demand from home buyers. Building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, fell 7% for the month. They were essentially flat year over year, lowest level since September of 2021. The biggest drop was in multifamily, but single family permits down 5.5% for the month. Again, all of this because affordability is just getting whacked by rising mortgage rates. The average on the 30-year fix started this year at just over 3%. It is now just over 6%. We know there is a big supply of unfinished homes in the pipeline, which Fed Chair Powell noted yesterday. He also said home buyers need a bit of a reset. That is supply and demand getting back to normal. He said the Fed is watching home prices, quote, quite carefully. Builders who just a few months ago said they had lots of pricing power, now apparently they are starting to drop those prices. Kelly? They are, because price is the one thing, even when we spoke to Lawrence Yoon yesterday, chief economist at the Association of Realtors, Diana, he wasn't sure prices were going to fall substantially. So it's interesting that you see a little bit of that taking place. Well, look, the home builders, they come at a price premium to existing homes. They had so much demand because existing home supply was so short. And they are also facing increased costs themselves for land, labor, materials. So they say they can't afford to drop prices by much. But again, either they're going to have to get into that lower price product or just take some of the heat out of this market. But I always want to say it's not that prices are necessarily falling. It's that the gains are shrinking. True. So we'll keep an eye for on now. that, of course. Exactly. For now. For now. <laughs> Diana, thank you. Our Diana Olek. It's not the home builders themselves that are only getting hit here. The ITB home construction ETF is down 6% today, but a lot of companies in it that make things involved with housing are also sitting at 52-week lows, like Fortune Brands, which makes things like cabinets and doors and locks. They're 50, 46% off their highs. Paint supplier Sherwin-Williams, 38% off the highs. Home improvement company Masco, 32% off of their highs. But could these names hold up better than feared thanks to last year's surge in home ownership? Joining me now is Ken Zener. He's KeyBank Capital Markets Equity Research Analyst. All right, Ken, lay it out. Where do you think there's some opportunity and maybe a little too much gloom? Any of these names? We are very cautious. As you know, our wow thesis, wall of worry, points to the building products, home builders, not underperforming the market basically till the last quartile um, of the tightening cycle. So while we think some are better positioned, um, you know, we are pretty negative. So, for example, NVR, which is also down, it's the one name we like, look to outperform. But, you know, demand is falling. Uh, Diane laid some of those data points out. We did release our A to Z report looking at June pending home sales, uh, which are down. That's for the existing market down 15 percent uh, in June. Not good. While supply rises, it's up roughly 22 percent year over year at the end of uh, May, the way we look at it. And in fact, as Diane also pointed out, you have the builders, they have roughly public builders, 200,000 units of inventory of which 50,000 are unsold. Uh, that leaves 150,000 in backlog. And those unsold have a lot of price pressure to clear out. You've got to think some of those backlogs uh, are going to be facing higher cancellation rates. And that's what's eroding you know, the sentiment in the group. Sure. 
So uh, the short answer is no, <laughs> there's nothing really in this space. And by the way, even NVR, which you, I think you're a little bit more upbeat on, our guest yesterday said he didn't think CNBC viewers should own it at all uh, because of some particular characteristics of the size of the company and other things. I mean, any response to that? Yeah, we uh, give advice, hopefully, to have our investors outperform the market. Yeah, well, all right, full stop. I got you. Let's turn then to some of the home furnishing stocks that I mentioned. If you're seeing this kind of bearishness play out in home sales, fine. I totally understand that. But what about the new homeowners from the past couple of years who potentially now are only just going to start looking at putting that uh, money to work in new flooring or new paint or what have you? Could those stocks be a, a, a better place to turn? Historically, uh, they are, uh, and we would generally expect that to play out. There's obviously different exposure for companies based on new home exposure and remodeling, as well as industry structure. Um, but I do think, you know, our wealth thesis is predicated upon 30% declines in home builders during average tightening cycles back to 1969, clearly um, with negative rates, Fed commentary, but really the gap between the Fed funds and the, the two-year rate. There's a lot of tightening, and um, you know I think a recession analysis points to further downside in our space. Um, there's not a lot of room for looking at individual names when you're having really this large outflow uh, of sentiment. Fair and enough. existing home sales are really slowing. Are you still overweight on Sherwin-Williams? We are, and that's with obviously uh, within a, a rating structure that's very cautious on home builders. We have you know uh, three that are underweight. So industry structure, we call it the three Ps, paint. Plumbing and the pool category we see is the most resilient, combined with the companies themselves operating the best industry structure. But as you highlighted, there's a lot of pain. We did downgrade uh, Fortune a few weeks ago. Uh, we just thought the story was over. They did talk about um, spitting out the cabinet business, which we think is indicative of not of upside, but of further troubles. Yeah, that's a great point. Although paint, plumbing and pools, they're the three Ps. Those are our glimmers today. Ken, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Ken Zener. Coming up, the energy ETF, believe it or not, the XLE, down 10% since our next guest said to short it two weeks ago. Now he's back and he'll join us after the break with a look at the breakdown in commodities more broadly. Could crude come crashing back to below $100 a barrel? Plus, the tech-heavy triple Qs are set to close out their worst quarter in two decades. Are there any names here worth buying or are there more opportunities to short? We'll explore that. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. The Dow's down 600 points, so we're off the lows. The Nasdaq down 3.7% and the 10-year yield down to 332. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Watching closely the commodity complex. Check out the huge year-to-date moves we've seen. Nat gas doubling, crude oil up 53%, nickel up 21%, corn rising 32%, wheat up almost 40%. But my next guest says there are now signs the uptrend is starting to deteriorate. Joining us now to check the charts is Carter Worth. He's founder of Worth Charting. He was more cautious on crude a couple of weeks ago, Carter, and you were right at least so far on that one. Well, you're very kind to remember a good one. We got my duds, as we all know, and we all do. But uh, I guess it, 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 the issue is this for commodities. Before we look at a chart or two, they, they have something of a blow off. Uh, it's in response to the Ukraine war, right? And so in a brief period of time, late February uh, to the first week in March, uh, oil went up 40%, right? Wheat almost doubled, nickel. And if you look at any major, major aggregate, whether it's the CRB or, or different ETFs, we know that that we've really never uh, exceeded that high. So, for instance, I, I, the first chart, I think, is informative. It's an ETF that you can trade. It's, it's ticker is GSG, and it's an iShares that represents a broad basket of commodities. And it's, it's energy exposed, it's agricultural exposed, it's livestock, precious metals, and so forth. And if you, if you look at that blow-off peak, uh, we're still now uh, under it three months later. And, and we're starting to break trend over the past six months. So a, a huge move, December 15th to June 15th, but it's all struggling. Copper's rolling over, oil's under pressure here. And I, I think that there's more downside, uh, that things get loved. Tech was loved and now it's hated. Uh, energy was loved and now you've got certain energy stocks off 15 and 20%. Uh, while mean reversion is not always uh, a satisfactory or valid technique, sometimes it is. And I think that's the moment here. Is it just a pause within a larger bull market? I asked Peter Bookvar, I don't know if you caught it a couple of minutes ago. Uh, he's been very bullish on commodities. And he said, listen, the dollar to him looks like it could be uh, having a short-term peak here. If the dollar rolls over, could that be another source of support for commodities to the upside? Right. Well, speaking of it, before we figure out going forward, think how impressive it's been that the commodities have been so strong, even in the face of a strong dollar, exactly. which does speak to exactly how strong a cycle this is. And cycles both have long term, intermediate term and short term. And so while we know that it has been a major bear cycle for commodities and over the past uh, two years, it's been a bull phase and they've outperformed stocks in general um, on an intermediate basis. And that's kind of the point we, about this exercise is that we a lot is baked in. And so independent of the long cycle, and I think that's valid, long, higher, you have to be tactical. And just as we're seeing energy uh, get hit now, I think the commodities in general are a bit ahead of themselves. So you wouldn't be long energy. You would not be long the commodities here in the intermediate no. term. Can That's I right. just ask you, since we have you, and before you go, I mean, what about the broader stock market? Right. And so uh, the, that, I mean, again, there is this thinking that somehow the market um, has started peaking in January. Here's the crazy thing. On December 15th, and there's no way around this, the Russell 3000 was down only 3.4%. And all the world is bullish, making big projections about 2022. And think about it. While only down 3.4%, the index, the Russell 3000, already at that point, half of all constituents had lost 20% of their value. In the December. market was foreshadowing this. Wow. 
So then where does that leave us now? Well, so now, just as perhaps it's it right to take the road less traveled when all are bullish in December, January, almost everyone's turned bearish. And I think you're going to get a bounce here. Wow. We're, I, I, this is the first hopeful sign I've heard from you, Carter, in a couple well, of uh, of the last appearances. No, it's good. It, maybe there's yeah, maybe well, we're we'll turning see. a corner. May, may it be so, as they say. May it be so, indeed. Carter, thanks for your time today. We appreciate you it. Bet. Carter Worth, the CNBC chart master. Coming up, the Nasdaq sinking to its lowest level since September 2020. We'll take a look at the tech names making the biggest moves. And as we head to break, a look at the Dow heat map with only two names in the green right now, while Nike Amex and Caterpillar are the worst performers. Those green spots are Walmart and P&G. We're back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm feeling a little more bullish after that Carter interview a couple of minutes ago, but the market's not there yet. The Dow is still down 666 points, 30,001 uh, for the blue chips right now. The S&P down 3%, the Nasdaq almost 4%. All 11 sectors are in the red. Consumer discretionary is the worst performer. All of these groups, every part of the uh, market is down at least 15% from its highs. The worst Communication services down 40%. Here are some of the movers this hour. The cruise stocks are among the worst performers in the S&P. The big three down another 10% today. They're down 50% this year. Who would have ever seen this coming? It's extraordinary. Big banks all broadly lower. JP Morgan, B of A, Wells, U.S. Bank, PNC. 52-week lows today. And let's get a quick check on those commodities we've been talking about all hour. Gold and silver a little higher as investors look for safety, if you want to call it that. Copper, aluminum, and steel are all in the red. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The January 6th committee returning today for its third public hearing, focusing on Vice President Mike Pence, and how former President Donald Trump put his life in danger. Donald Trump turned the mob on him, a mob that was chanting, hang Mike Pence, a mob that had built a hangman's gallows just outside the Capitol. Thanks in part to Mike Pence, our democracy withstood Donald Trump's scheme. And tonight on the news, the full story behind the pressure campaign to get Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 election. Tonight with Shep Smith. The alleged Buffalo mass shooter appeared in federal court a few hours ago. The federal charges could carry the death penalty, which New York State charges do not. And Abbott's critical baby formula plant in Michigan is closed again after a powerful storm flooded part of the plant. The company estimates production and distribution will be delayed for a few weeks until the damage is assessed and the facility is cleaned and sanitized. More trouble on the baby formula front. Kelly, back to you. Last thing we want to hear right now. Tyler, thank you very much. Coming up, inflation is at 40-year highs, but is it going to stick around? How can policymakers avoid a rerun of the stagflationary 70s? Dan Clifton joins me next. 
And this month, we have some financial planning tips to help protect your money during market turmoil. Here is senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson. Here's a tip for your money, your future. Consider boosting your short-term savings with I-bonds. They can be a good hedge against inflation with strong returns. The rate on I-bonds rises and falls with the consumer price index. Right now, that rate is 9.62% for six months. You can purchase up to $10,000 in I-bonds each year directly from the government at treasurydirect.gov. Just remember, you can't cash them in for one year and there's a penalty for selling within five years. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. Welcome back. Stocks are selling off again today as central banks around the world hike rates to battle inflation. Chair Powell yesterday saying many inflationary drivers are beyond the Fed's control. But my next guest isn't so sure. Washington flooded the economy with stimulus dollars to offset the pandemic, causing nominal growth to explode to 10 percent last year. And that's not the only policy error compounding problems. Joining me now is Dan Clifton. He is head of policy research at Strategus Securities, a Baird company. All right, Dan, it's good to have you. And let's not, you know, over litigate what should have happened, but exactly. to take the, mm -hmm. the sort of conclusions and, and say what needs to be done right now. That's absolutely right, Kelly. If you think about it, uh, you know, the Fed's job is hard enough. They were behind the ball. We've made some serious policy errors. You mentioned the spending. I would also argue that we've had no change in energy policy since the Russia-Ukraine attack, even though we knew oil prices would go up if that attack hit. And we're starting to see more and more pressure in the energy and the food markets itself, which are going to further make the Fed's job harder. As we start to think about what could happen moving forward, there are very active negotiations happening today. In fact, there was a meeting in the White House with the president yesterday about potentially raising taxes yeah. and paying for more renewable energy spending that won't hit until 2025 or 2026. And if you think about where economic growth is today, it's probably going to be negative in the first half of this year with that high inflation. And so we're getting a lot more spinach or the possibility of more spinach, and that could be a potential policy error. We should really be looking at ways that we can start to increase production of oil and gas, distribute it better, and as well as being the support system for our friends in Europe by removing the caps for NATO countries to receive LNG uh, exports from the United States, huh. all of that will help. But when I look at the headlines over the last two days, the, you have the president's letter to the oil companies possibly implicating price controls or something on energy, which will be a policy error, uh, the opposite effect. And we're still having serious talks about some bill back smaller, which is a lot of tax increases up front at a time when companies and individuals do not have the resources to pay those taxes. You know, ironically, the one thing that it could all result in is to slow the economy enough to bring down inflation. So in an odd way, it's pointing in the same direction as the Fed, if that's now the primary goal. It's just that it might set us up for a situation in which we have more stagflation and a less productive economy over the ensuing, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Well, that's absolutely correct, Kelly, right? And so I want to be careful here that slower growth does not necessarily mean slower inflation. In 1968, where there's enormous parallels to where we are today, we raised corporate and individual income taxes to slow inflation down. And what we got was the complete opposite. We got the slow growth, but we didn't get the inflation down. In fact, inflation accelerated. In 1993, Alan Greenspan and Bill Clinton said if we raise taxes, the Fed wouldn't have to raise rates as much. And as you know, in 1994, we had a furious raising Federal Reserve, including at 75 bips 
uh, 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 Fed funds rate increase after that tax increase was enacted. So that slower growth doesn't always result in lower inflation. And we need to be very careful about those policy decisions that we need to make. The big takeaway from this is that the monetary framework and the fiscal framework that we've been using for 40 years has been completely upended this year. And you're throwing this kind of geopolitical challenges on top of it. It is important to figure out what the problem is and get that solution correct rather than going into these policy error, beginning policy error, beginning policy error. In that respect, that's what led to the problems in the 70s and the risk we have if we make mistakes. I I just don't think the, you know, the current administration is going to want to incentivize more energy production or lower taxes. So do we look maybe five months ahead to the midterms for something substantive there? Can anything come out of a a more dramatic change in in control or, you know, another couple of years there's the presidential re-election? Or do you think that maybe things will change quietly on the margin, that maybe we might hear a lot of rhetoric about going after these companies, but that they know this, they know what you're saying, and and they're going to work to actually encourage more production? Yeah, it's an awesome question. And let let me just start off by saying that when we refused not to do something after February, what you had was higher oil prices. You now have Russia making huge gains in eastern Ukraine, and you have much more worse political polling for the Democrats. So the failure to act has really hurt uh, across the board for the Democrats in office, politically, economically, geopolitically. And so the question is, okay, well, if the Republicans win in their midterm elections, are we going to do an energy bill? That would still require the Democrats to say, hey, we, we need to do a fossil fuel bill. And that's really tough given where the climate change constituencies are. You would need 60 votes in the Senate to pass something like that next year. But I do believe that this will be the energy election. The Republicans will have to do something on energy. It just may not result in uh, a bill getting signed into law. And by then, Russia might even be making more gains in Eastern Europe. So again, we want to get this right. We got to figure out what's best for the country. In March of 2020, we did that. They passed $2 trillion of spending, Kelly. That was not easy for many small government Republicans. They did it. It worked. Now we need the Democrats to say, maybe we need a little bit more fossil fuels rather than trying to rely on Saudi Arabia and Venezuela to be able to achieve our objectives. And and my sense is the American voters are going to demand change until they get it. Or could we see something more technical and esoteric like the Jones Act, which might not have quite the the sort of political implications of, of suspending that at least temporarily just so we can use more ships to move, you know, oil from the Gulf of Mexico to the Northeast, for instance. Absolutely. Right. So we can do things on the margin. We've always done these after hurricanes. We still haven't done it here for this supply disruption. This is as big as I've ever seen it. My concern, Kelly, is that we're going to have a hurricane in August or September and it's going to knock off refining capacity. And we do not have the cushion to withstand that. So we should be making these changes and building in that cushion ahead of that period just to manage the risk. I would love to see it. But last week, the president basically gave governors veto power over pipeline distribution rejection. So we've actually been moving in the opposite direction. And I would just like to see a little bit more of an all the above approach. I understand the climate change concerns, but the, the stakes here are pretty important for the U.S. economy. And they're pretty important for geopolitics. And we're not doing any of that right now. And it's compounding and making the Fed's job much more difficult to get inflation under control. Dan, it's great to have you today. Thanks for your time.
Great, thank you. Dan Clifton of Strategus. Still ahead, the NASDAQ lagging today as tech gets the brunt of the sell-off again. We have the names making the biggest moves lower. But check out Twitter, which just turned negative moments ago. It had been up about a percent as Elon Musk attends that virtual all-hands meeting to talk to employees. Among other things, he said he's not hung up on CEO titles, doesn't care about being CEO per se, but does want to drive product in a certain specific direction. Stay with us here on The Exchange. Welcome back. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit again today, down 3.8% right now and underperforming the Dow and S&P. Christina Partsinevelis is over in Times Square at the Nasdaq, where she has managed to find at least some bright spots. Christina? Uh, Keyword some, very some. And out of 100 stocks on the Nasdaq today, we've only got two. Only two in the green, and that's Kraft Heinz and AstraZeneca. And honestly, it's just barely. But overall, the broad-based selling continues with the Nasdaq at its lowest level since September 2020. You got EV maker Lucid Motors, unfortunately the worst Nasdaq performer, down almost 10% today but already 68% off its 52-week high, double the average drop in the EV sector or subsector. Familiar cloud and enterprise names leading the trend down, Zscaler, Datadog, ServiceNow. You can see all of those stocks on your screen well or 8% or lower. We've got fast-growing financial technology stocks that have been, unfortunately, among the biggest losers in the market downturn. Affirm, for example, just take a look at this stock. You can see that it's almost down 10% today, but down 83% year-to-date. Much of that drop coming specifically from just this month alone. And then every constituent of the SMH ETF, so this is a semiconductor ETF, down at least 3% or more with AMD, Marvell, Qualcomm, part of the worst performers on the NASDAQ today. And then Chinese technology. I know just two days ago I was talking about it. It was turning around on better than expected retail sales, stronger sovereign bond sales, and a bet maybe that Chinese policy will be more accommodative. But... That's not helping them today. Baidu, Baba, Pinduoduo, you can see all in this red, Pinduoduo down almost uh, over 3% right now. And it seems like traders pretty much settling on the notion that the Fed may not come to the rescue anymore, even at the risk of a recession. Kelly? Kraft Heinz is not usually the first NASDAQ name I think of. It wasn't. It was actually Monster, but right before going live, I was told (laughs) that... Monster beverage was now in the red. So Uh, you never know what you're going to get, right? Exactly. Got to take it right down to the wire. Uh, Christina, thank you very much. Christina Partsinevelis. Coming up, we're digging deeper into the tech sell-off to see whether some of the names with outsized losses are now a buying opportunity. Danielle Shea weighs in next. And as we head to break, check out the biggest laggards on the S&P today. Names like Etsy down 10%, the Cruise Lines, and laser maker IPG Photonics. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everybody. One more thing before we go. Here's a staggering stat. About 20% of millionaires think inflation will last at least two years, according to a recent CNBC survey. Robert Frank is here now with the data and how these folks are positioning their portfolios in response, Robert. Well, Kelly, this group owns more than 85% of individually held stocks, so they can really impact markets. And for the first time, they cite inflation as the number one threat to the economy. They also say inflation is the top risk to their personal wealth ahead of the stock market. Now, majority say the economy is headed into a recession this year, or it's already in one. Most also say inflation will last at least a year or two, with one in five saying it's going to last more than two years. 
Now, they still have some faith in the Fed. Most are somewhat or very confident that the Fed is going to be able to manage inflation here. But this is political here. Democratic millionaires nearly twice as confident in the Fed than Republican millionaires. About half say the S&P is going to end the year down double digits. And for their portfolios, it's all about cash and fixed income right now. Nearly half say they have kept more money in cash because of inflation and the markets going forward. They plan to move more money into short-term fixed income. As for stocks, twice as many plan to buy stocks in the coming months rather than sell. So that's a good sign. But the overall allocation of stocks, still the lowest that we've seen, Kelly, in the eight years that we've been doing this survey. So it could be a headwind for the market as it tries to recover its footing here, Robert. It's also interesting to see them so bullish on owning fixed income, which has been one of the worst performing asset classes. Granted, you said very short duration, or you said short duration. Maybe it's very short duration where yeah. they're just happy to get some yield. Exactly. They're happy to get that yield. And what's interesting, too, on your point about stocks and perhaps the silver lining or the not silver lining, usually, let's say back in March of 2020, they were the first to come in to see opportunities to buy. We're not seeing signs in this survey that they right now see that opportunity to buy, hmm. at least not yet. All right. Very interesting. Robert Frank on the Millionaire's Reporting Beat. We appreciate it. They see recession. Speaking of recession, we're going to look at two names that could do well in a slowing economy, if that's what where we're headed. That's coming up next hour in Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.